0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Project MedTech. I am the founder of Project MedTech, Dwayne Mancini. If you need anything from us or would like to suggest a future guest, you can email us at info at projectmedtech.com. If you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. And you can always visit our website, www.projectmedtech.com, or follow us on LinkedIn. This is another episode of Project MedTech series, MedTech Money. This is a special series by Project MedTech where we have partnered with Mr. MedTech himself, Giovanni Loricella, in a series of podcast episodes focusing on money in the MedTech space. Giovanni's guest today is Emily Caparello and David McMullen. In this episode, Giovanni, Emily, and David discuss grant funding from the NIH, the small business funding group she oversees, her background in the health tech space, why entrepreneurs might want to get non-dilutive funding, the mechanics of how this non-dilutive funding works, the Blueprint MedTech program, how they provide access to resources, and so much more. So without further ado, Giovanni's discussion with Emily Caparello and David McMullen.
1: So everyone, I am very excited about this one. This one is a unique twist. We have not done this yet here on the MedTech Money podcast series. We have two guests simultaneously and also an interesting new topic of which we haven't had on here yet either, which is grant funding and two individuals from the NIH. So very happy and proud to have both Emily as well as David here. On this podcast today, we'll get into their backgrounds quickly, but this is the MedTech Money podcast series powered by Project MedTech and sponsored by Lifeblood Capital. So I want to set the stage as to why we're here. Um, Emily, as well as David, I've talked to thousands of MedTech entrepreneurs and investors around the world, and I've discovered that there's no real silver bullet or specific formula about how to raise or even invest capital in MedTech. So my goal here is to extract insights and anecdotal stories from new topic today, funders like yourself, as well as entrepreneurs, investors, and investment bankers, so that we can help those who can benefit from the information and also for generations of entrepreneurs, as well as investors to come. So the audience listening in on this right now is certainly an mixture of experts as well as novices. And I wanna take out and extract your stories, your advice, your insights for what I imagine and what you probably deal with very often is that first time founder or CEO of which has no clue on how to raise money or what lies ahead of that journey, including grant funding. So the best place to start is learning from experienced professionals like yourself. And the topic of today, I've already popped that bubble but we'll get into it again. It's grant funding coming from the NIH's perspective. And I'm very excited to get into that because it's a different style of funding. It's not investments per se. And Emily and David are going to help out with clarifying that. So before we get into that, we're going to start with Emily today. Emily going to holistically start talking about the NIH. And then David's going to speak to a very specific program coming from his background, which is called the Blueprint Program, both of these also have a foundational approach to the the neuro or the neurological side within NIH. However, we will be speaking about NIH as a whole. So for all those listeners out there looking for grant funding or understanding how that process looks, this is what today's podcast will be. So starting with Emily, I have three questions for you. The first one is, do you believe that people and money are the lifeblood of a med tech startup, why or why not? Or would you include anything else in there?
2: Sure. So I definitely agree that people are the lifeblood of the startup world. They they are the, the power engine, the vision, the idea. Um, the money is needed, it's necessary. Uh, funders, you know, like myself and David, representing the NIH, are part of, of the making that uh, making those wheels churn making that vision come to life, but um, there's a lot of other pieces that are needed. And I think it's really about the people who uh, bring their vision and really make it happen and uh, get something out into the world that hopefully will make a difference.
1: And the second one is, if you knew what you know now about being a MedTech funder, would you do it all over again? Why or why not? Or what would you do differently?
2: A hundred percent. I think I am in a very unique position where um, I get to help allocate funding to uh, small businesses that are in the med tech space, based purely on the potential impact to patients. Um, in, in our specific world, uh, the, because of the, the way that this is grant funding, not equity-based funding, there is not a part of the equation that's about the size of the return or the timing of the return. Um, really, those economic factors get to go away uh, in so far as they extend beyond, will this product get to market and will it be helpful uh, for patients at the, the scale and timeline needed to be impactful and to be helpful, um, which is a, a phenomenal position to be in. I really, um, I really love both being on the funding side and being at this particular um, type of funding at the NIH.
1: And the last one, the name of the company or the organization that you represent NIH. What does it mean? What does it stand for?
2: Sure. Um, so David and I are at the National Institutes of Health. Uh, this is a, a huge organization that is taking, um, mission is to take turn discoveries into health. Uh, it's entirely funded by taxpayer dollars. Uh, it touches research organizations across the U.S. and even globally. Uh, and um, we specifically have funding that goes out to industry and small businesses as well.
1: So we've mentioned this word funder a few times already. And for the remainder of this podcast, for both yourself, Emily, as well as David, I want to have the listeners just understand what we mean by that, because I usually say you're either a medtech entrepreneur or a medtech investor, at least on this podcast. From your words, this difference or these nuances. What's the difference between a funder and an investor? Why aren't you an investor?
2: Sure, um, I. You know, it's a, a subtle difference, I suppose. Um, we we act very similarly, in our office, and that our office is um, conducting full due diligence. We have uh, we have uh, expert peer uh, panels that evaluate the science and the potential of the project and the company. Um, we, we take a serious look at these companies before we make any funding recommendations that are ultimately approved by the directors of our institutes. Um, so in a lot of ways, the, the function is similar, but the type of uh, the funding itself is different in terms of the impact on the small business. So a recipient of, of say, an SBIR, a Small Business uh, Innovation Research grant, Um, is going to have that money uh, as a grant. It's not a loan, they don't need to repay it. It's not not an equity-based investment. They don't need to um, give up any equity. So it is highly beneficial in many ways to the recipient to to look at grant funding uh, as opposed to other kinds of, of funding in that respect. But practically speaking, our office functions in many ways um, similar to a private investor other than, you know, again, our funding is secured from the NIH taxpayer. So we do not have a portion of our business that's involved with, say, raising funds um, or, you know, interacting with fund, with, with uh, investors um, to kind of make a, a fund of a certain size. We don't have that same schedule that private investors have. We have a big pot of money. It's sourced from, from taxpayers. And then our work is really on trying to find the most uh, potentially impactful technologies to um, allocate that funding to.
1: So for those listening, I want to start putting a name as well as history behind the voice of the woman who's been speaking thus far from the NIH, Emily. Emily, please introduce yourself. Where'd you sure. start from? Where are you from? how did you get to where you are? And also a director at the NIH.
2: Yes, thank you. Uh, yes, so I'm, I'm Emily Caporello. I'm the director of the NINDS Small Business Program. NINDS is one of the 27 institutes and centers that make up the NIH. Uh, NINDS is the National Institute of Neurological Disorders and Stroke. So the mission of our institute is really about um, neurological disorders and general neurology, things that fall under that space. Um, My specific role is directing the small business program, which is really a, a set aside amount of funding that is specifically for small businesses. Um, In our case at NINDS, this is about $75 million annually that we um, give out in either grant or cooperative agreements to specifically small businesses. At the NIH overall, that's over $1.1 billion that are going out annually to small businesses working in in the health space, biotech, medtech, uh, therapeutics development, diagnostics, research tools, a whole wide variety of, of technologies that touch on health. Um, how did I get here? Uh, well, I, um, I started out in uh, neuroscience research um, as an undergrad down the road at, at Johns Hopkins. I majored in, in neuroscience and started doing research there at the Johns Hopkins Medical Institute. Um, I loved it so much I decided to do a PhD. I thought I would be in, on the research side uh, for the long haul, I went to UCSD to do uh, research in um, in systems neuroscience, where I specialized in neurophysiology. I actually worked on songbirds uh, in the lab of Tim Gettner, uh studying oh, auditory cool. processing and auditory attention. And um, I had a phenomenal long seven years in San Diego, uh, which was fantastic. Um, and, but during that time, I, I kind of Uh, felt really pulled to the applications of neuroscience and um, felt very, when I was in the research field, especially the basic research field, feeling very far removed from that point of potential impact. I think something probably a lot of us who have gone onto the translational side um, have felt. So um, I ended up moving after, after I finished my PhD I took a position. Um, well, actually, I, I co-founded a company called mine, called Clever Pet uh, in my final year of grad school with some fellow graduate students. Uh, Clever Pet is um, not really a medical technology. It is a gaming system for dogs, where it's sort of like a Simon-based Uh, a console, if you can imagine, it's it's kind of on the floor and there's buttons that dogs have to push in a certain order and it gets harder and harder. And when they get it correct, they get um, a piece of food. And so it's really intended for dogs that have a lot of anxiety during the day, they need to be entertained. Um, And there's actually some really phenomenal videos of of dogs using um, these devices. We were successful in launching the product. It got out in the market, sold on Amazon, sold on the website. Um, the, the team that I, my, of my co-founders really took it forward and did a great job with that product. Uh, and it was a phenomenal experience. I mean, we were really, it was the three of us on the ground trying to make the, um, uh, the software work, trying to test it, trying to get um, contract with uh, prototype uh, uh, contractors, trying to pull in money, figure out how to get money, figure out how to get advisors, Um, all of that from, you know, three of us really learning it on the ground at that time. So it was a phenomenal learning experience for me. I stayed with that company for about a year through a successful Kickstarter campaign that got us um, funding to do our first, uh, actual, actual products that we, that we got out there to the community. Um, I left right after that because I had an opportunity to join the neurotech uh, division of DARPA, the Defense Advanced Research Project Agency, um, specifically in the biological, um, well, first I was at a, a different office, but what became the biological um, technologies office at DARPA, which was um, an incredible experience. I was in the role of a CEDA, which is a, a science and engineering um, Technology advisor or assistant, or the A was always a little bit ambiguous. But basically, my role was to help to facilitate um, programs coming in neurotech coming out of DARPA. So these were um, large programs on the order of you know maybe fifty million dollars that were designed to accomplish a very specific goal that was relevant to um, to the U.S. Defense Department of Defense. Um, in about a five year or so uh, timescale. And so I worked on projects that were um, related to creating technologies to interface with nerves to help um, uh, amputated individuals be able to both intuitively control robotic um, or prosthetic limbs in in addition to actually sensing and feeling um, from those uh, limbs again. Um, I worked on other programs that were about uh, creating Cutting-edge capabilities for um, recording neural activity. Um, it was really a phenomenal experience being a part of um, of that organization for about four four and a half years. Um, at the end of that, I actually left again to co-found a startup called Mindex, um, which is uh, is focused on creating. Um, again, it's kind of in the software space about connecting neural interfaces um, to intuitive ways to control computer systems around you. So um, one of the applications, one of the things I was working on was collaborations with a number of labs in the US who have uh, 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 patients or volunteers who have, you know, usually spinal cord injury or some other type of paralysis where um, they've actually had a neural interface implanted Uh, And we would use the signals coming from those uh, neural implants to, uh, along with eye movements or other types of controls, to create um, more intuitive ways to control uh, computers or other types of of systems in the environment to hopefully help facilitate agency of an individual who had lost lost, uh, agency of their their body. I was with them for, I think, about a year and a half or two years. And then I had the opportunity to come to back to the funder side at NINDS, um, which, which, I, which I did. So I joined NINDS about uh, two and a half years ago. Um, I moved into this director role about two years ago. Uh, and that's where I have been since. And I've been, um, as for all the reasons I mentioned before, very, very uh, happy to be here and, and making an impact in this, in this way. Um, to to neurotechnologies and um, innovations in the neurology space.
1: So you've already given a pretty good introduction to the NIH. So I want to actually start wrapping around some real world intro or real world concepts for those entrepreneurs wow. listening out there who have no clue about grant funding or maybe are just starting to dabble but would love to learn what the rest of the process looks like. Um, on the website, especially the one that you sent me, it, it was actually meaning these SBIR and the Small Business Technology Transfer, STTR mm-hmm. programs. They're also called the America's Seed Fund. Yes. So I, I love to hear that. And, and I'm sure the entrepreneurs who are raising capital right now would also wanna hear more about that too. So let's just dumb it down and imagine that I am a first time, first time founder. I have an idea and I may have a little money, I may have no money, but I just need something to be able to move it forward. Where does the NIH versus angel groups or VC mm-hmm. come into that play? Why would I go get NIH non-dilutive grant funding versus other styles of money?
2: Absolutely, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm so happy to, to talk about this and make sure that founders out there are aware uh, of this type of funding. So um, yes, America's Seed Fund is kind of the tagline of the SBIR and STTR programs. These are congressionally mandated programs that say that any any US organization, US agency that is giving money out for research purposes has to spend a certain percentage and that comes down to about 3.65% of their funding on small businesses specifically. And those are usually administered through this SBIR and STTR um, type of funding. So many agencies beyond NIH, so NSF, um, Department of Defense, have these pools of money that they have to spend on small businesses. And the, the small businesses that are eligible uh, typically are um, 500 employees or less. They need to be U.S. owned. There's specific you know, eligibility criteria that uh, you, can, you can find on the NIH website, sbir.nih.gov, uh, if you want to check if you're eligible. But the, the really, the two big ones are U.S. owned and um, under 500 employees. So many startups in the US fit under this eligibility criteria. So when is it right to come to us? So um, the the program is kind of chunked in phases. So typically a a, uh, small business would start with a phase one proposal. These are meant to be feasibility studies we're really right at that same phase that you would potentially go for angel funding. Sometimes we're even a little before that because we're really intended to be funding your first proof of concept work. So this is usually at the point where there is, um, you know, hopefully some very solid basic science data or early early translational data showing that there is some Uh, scientific rationale for the product that you plan to produce, right? So maybe, you know, if you're doing, um, I don't know, a um, uh, C-fiber stimulation device for pain, you could look to all the basic research that's been done showing that there, you know, is a clear role of C-fibers in um, controlling pain. Uh, So There's a clear, solid rationale for what you're doing, but you're gonna be first developing the prototype and testing this in say an animal model. That's right at that phase one stage. You really should be, it's fine to be building your prototype. It's fine to be doing that very early testing. That is the stage where we look at phase one funding. Now, one of the reasons that, um, that, small businesses may shy away from going after that phase one funding is because it can be somewhat limited in dollars. In fact, if you go to the Small Business Association's website and their description of SBIR and STTR, you see that typically a phase one project is at just about 150k in total cost, and it's usually around six months to a year. But one thing I want to make sure that uh, the audience here knows is that especially at NIH, we have a number of waivers that we've established with Uh, the Small Business Administration, which allow us to give larger sums of money at that phase one level. So at many institutes at NIH, you'll see it's easy to get, not easy, but it is possible, quite possible, uh, to get a 400K, 500K. um, Even at, at NINDS, our institute, if you have a project over a year, we can go up to 700K. So those are some pretty sizable chunks of money at that very early stage that can hopefully get you to the point of both maybe building a prototype of a device and and also maybe testing it uh, either on the bench in a phantom or potentially even in a small or large animal depending on on how your costs break down um, and actually proving that feasibility out. Um, That would be a phase one. After that, uh, after you've done a phase one or if you have already conducted that phase one level proof of concept work through other funding, you can come in for phase two funding. Um, phase 2 funding is going to be either up to two to three years, and the budgets for Phase 2 are, are typically much larger, um, especially at NIH where we have, again, many um, waiver topics that are approved. Um, so we see projects very commonly that go from, you, know, anywhere from two to three million for these, these two to three year projects. And often in the med tech space, Those are helping companies get through uh, their their ISO testing that they need for their IDE that might be, um, they may be submitting to the FDA, certainly their large animal studies, um, safety and tox studies, uh, finalizing from prototype to a final final version, manufacturing that version to get ready for clinical trials that they plan to conduct. And then after that phase two level, um, there are opportunities to extend even to extend funding for that project through grant funding, even farther down the line. Uh, there are follow on mechanisms such as phase 2B or the commercialization readiness pilot that will allow another $3.5 $3. million uh, to continue that funding, for instance, through, um, through first stage clinical studies, early, early feasibility studies in the, in the clinic um, and help push that technology further and further through what we all refer to as that valley of debt. That's what we're trying to fit, right? We're trying to prove out technologies and new products to the point where they are viable for that larger third-party investment, that VC funding. Um, And and this, this SBIR funding, this grant funding, um, America's seed fund is one of the largest overall sources of funding for that stage. So it's absolutely something I highly recommend med tech developers take a look at, especially if you're looking at some really costly preclinical development um, activities that are, are going to need to be funded before you're really going to be viable for that VC funding. Certainly some we see some um, some startups in uh, the the kind of software space, um, IT space that really only need a year to prove out until they can kind of blow up and be commercial. Um, And for perhaps for those groups that really don't have a big valley death to cover, um, it may not be worth the time and energy that it takes that I'm happy to talk about to actually go through this path to get grant funding. Um, But for a lot of people developing, medical technologies. Um, we are looking at a, a big cost, a big price tag uh, to get that, that technology uh, proven to the point of being ready for uh, larger investment from private industry. And that's, that's what we're here to do.
1: So I've talked to other investors as well as um, governmental associates, if you will, for, out of Israel. And there's this very well known program coming from the Israel Innovation Authority. um, Also funding very early stage startups, similar to what you guys are talking about. But the way they model it is, meaning in Israel, that it's not a grant per per se, it's actually almost like a loan, so that they're going to be getting royalties in the future if the company is successful, and obviously taking risk on giving money to early stage companies. If they don't go anywhere, that's the risk they take. Um, it sounds like, and correct me if I'm wrong, or at least make it clear, please. Um, no one ever has to pay the NIH back if you give them money.
2: Absolutely correct. This is this is entirely money that goes to the company. We, take, we, we don't have any ownership but on the IP. In fact, there's actually, specifically under SBIR and STTR funding, there's some very specific protections for IP developed under these um, under these mechanisms that preserves those rights for the company and not, and, and not for the government. So it's actually an incredibly advantageous type of funding from an IP standpoint, from a, an economic standpoint in terms of, you know, you're not having to pay it back. You don't, the government doesn't have equity in your company. It is just grant funding that comes to you specifically for the purpose of advancing a product towards develop, you know, towards commercialization.
1: So it might be an easy response or answer, or it might be some big, grandioso, philosophical, altruistic response. But if that's the case, what's the NIH getting out of this? I mean, it's so easy. I mean, you're giving away money, and it's non-dilutive, and it's helping out entrepreneurs. What is the
2: NIH getting? Well, I think, you know, think about it from the patient perspective, from who who is NIH serving? We are serving, the, the, the NIH taxpayer is funding us, or the sorry, the U.S. taxpayer is funding us, the NIH. Um, A lot of that money is going to basic research, and that's all well and good. We can understand more about how diseases are working, but the ultimate benefit to the U.S. taxpayer, to the the U.S. citizen, is when those discoveries meaningfully result in solutions for health, when they they translate Mm. into new drugs, new products, new treatments uh, that actually impact people who have cancer, migraines, uh, epilepsy, a, a million different disorders, right? Diabetes, I mean, these are big health factors in the US and taxpayers put money into the NIH and want to see these things turn into actual products on the market to improve health, to treat patients. And we all know that there is this big valley of death that happens from really excellent, innovative, cutting edge research discoveries and turning those things and doing the work and paying the extraordinary amounts of money it takes to turn those discoveries into a product that makes it to market. So it is absolutely, I think, essential to our mission at NIH to invest in in proving out those ideas for new innovative solutions for health um, to a point where there is clearly feasibility to take that forward and, and put the kinds of money into those products that VCs can then put in. Um, so that's that's really is, I think, a clear alignment with what NIH is trying to do. And a crucial part of our mission space is actually translating those discoveries to commercial products for, for the people, yeah.
1: So I'm a engineer. I just graduated with my PhD or a master's degree and I have this idea. and. My, I don't come from a family that can help me out with family and friends. I don't know anyone else who can throw me twenty thousand here, whatever it may be. And all that I have is an idea and something on a napkin. Mm-hmm. Are you funding something like that?
2: Yes, as long as, as long as you are putting together a strong team, you are, um, you, you put together a really clear plan, I and mean, you can, I can walk through basically what the review criteria are going to be. Right, we're going to look at the team. We're going to look at the company. Is it it a real company? You have to actually form the company and register the company with uh, the Small Business Administration with NIH. So it has to be formed. It has to be real. Um, There needs to be somebody who works there. There needs to be a location that that company is at. Um, And it's okay if if you don't have that location yet, but it needs to be something where, you know, if this is funded, we're going to have a slot at X incubator or we're gonna have a, a, you know, a space that we're renting here. Um, you need to have uh, facilities where you can conduct the research that you're proposing. A lot of times we see people do this by creating uh, collaborations with academics. So it is not uncommon for us to see um, a young new startup uh, bring in a collaboration with a, an established lab in that space where they have say a, a certain animal model Um, that can that they want to use to do proof of concept work. Um, But, you know, it has to be a very strong proposal, well thought out, um, with all those, those T's crossed and I's dotted. But yes, it is, that is the, the stage, that stage is absolutely appropriate for considering SBIR and STTR funding.
1: So that's one extreme of the range. If we go to the Mm -hmm. other extreme, you you mentioned the two major points to consider are it has to be a US company and under 500 employees. That's right. If we look at the med tech acquisitions, typically speaking, they're often under 100 employees. Mm -hmm. Hundreds of millions of dollars in acquisitions are Mm -hmm. at least Mm -hmm. falling within companies that could satiate both of those points that you mentioned. So if we talked about the engineer on the napkin and you could do that pending those points that they can say chate for you, um, is it also true where you could have a company, a startup company that might be around for five years, 10 years, whatever it may be in various life stages and they're still reaching out to the NIH for money?
2: Absolutely, absolutely. So a couple different scenarios. So one is that um, they've been doing kind of you know preliminary proof of concept work through their own means of funding perhaps through angel investors family and friends but they're now at a point where they're like look we really need about three million to be able to get us through our ide enabling studies before we go to the fda right or maybe they've actually gotten to the point where they've fully developed and validated a prototype um, but now they really need money to scale up manufacturing to support a clinical trial And they want both that manufacturing um, funding and that clinical trial funding, and they come to us at that point. We also have companies that perhaps have already developed a product or two, or are far far along in those developments of a product or two, but have a new idea and really don't internally have the additional funding to support new R&D, but they know that they have the capabilities to take on development of this new product. And we absolutely work with those companies and fund those companies to develop a new technology, even though that company maybe has sufficient funding to have taken a couple of products to market. Um, So 100%, really, as long as you are meeting the criteria of of being SBIR eligible, and you are looking to do research and development work, because that's what we can fund, R&D, um, you're you're eligible for for funding under the NIH. So um, we see a lot of different shades of uh, of eligible applicants.
1: So a, f- a few more, a couple higher level big questions before we get David in here and have him tell the story of the Blueprint program. But um, then it, it sounds almost too good to be true. But I don't want to pump it up too much. I mean, why doesn't every med tech startup
2: yeah, get the catch?
1: Yeah. The catch what, the is catch it? It? it can be
2: hard. Yeah. The catch is it can be hard. I mean, I'm going to argue it's not harder than any path to private funding, um, but it, it is a chunk of work. So um, the application itself is, you know, the applications that come in are often 100 pages long. I and mean, the, the research section is only it's limited to either six to 12 pages. Um, there's commercialization plan section that's about 10 pages. You know, the actual content of what you're writing is not. um. Too crazy, but you really have to have your ducks in a row. If you're proposing that you're going to do uh you know certain studies, you have to know the number of animals that you're doing and why that number is sufficient and what exact model you're using and why that's the right model, and that you have the right team member who's trained to do work with that model, or if you're you know prototyping that you have the team that's capable of prototyping and that you're validating it in the right way, and this is exactly how you're going to validate it. You really have to have on the front, on the front end. At the time of application, before there's any idea that you're going to get funding, you have to have worked out in detail exactly what you're going to do and be able to justify the heck out of it as being the right thing to do. Uh, Because that application, so it's going to come in, uh, there's three times a year that we accept applications, September 5th, January 5th, and April 5th. They go to review a peer review panel. Of experts that are related, experts related to the type of technology that you're um, proposing. They are going to read through it, they are going to judge you on those criteria, and they're going to give you a score. Um, and typically, it, it, you know, it all depends on the number of applications coming in and the amount of funds we have and how much those proposals cost. Typically, historically, the NIH typically funds about 20% of proposals. So There's about a 20% success rate. Um, that does that that can waver, but you can see it, it's actually published on um, on that website sbir.ah.gov. You can go and see historically what those success rates have been. Um, so it's a lot of work up front, and it takes about six to nine months to to hear back as to whether you are going to be funded um, for that project. So it you know again, I will argue that in many. Um, uh, private industry relationships. It can take six months, nine months, a year to actually get funding, but you're doing a lot of back and forth, right? So there's an initial pitch. It takes some energy from you to put that pitch together, um, but it's not crazy. And then you get some feedback, and then you, you know they're going to do further due diligence and digging. Um, in this case, you're doing all that work up front. You're really putting everything out there. It is a a, a lot of time to do that, and you know you're going to kind of hear nothing for about six to nine months, and then it maybe will or will not get funded. Um, so that can be, it's, it's a different style and it takes a lot of work up front for um, the applicant. And that can be, um, that can be a deterrent. Um, but you know, I again, what what I would, what I would, what I would say to small businesses is, you know, it's not about picking one path or the other. You know, you've got to kind of simultaneously pursue every avenue of funding that's available to you. And this is one that can be really good and actually doing the work to get that application ready is only going to help you prepare for those meetings you're going to be having with investors, with angels um, uh, and with, uh, gosh, with incubators who you may be interested in working with accelerators. Uh, It's just going to help you really work out the plan of how you plan on bringing your product to market Um, so, you know, even if you aren't funded, I think it can be helpful to go through that work and strengthen your, your, uh, conversations that you're having with other potential investors and funders as well. Um, but that can be the deterrent. It's a lot of work.
1: So for new startup companies, it sounds like being able to put that plan together or know how many animals you need, et cetera. It sounds very technical in nature. So imagine if I'm some VP of sales and marketing who left Medtronic and wanted to become a first-time CEO of a MedTech yep. startup. Um, I mean, would I even have the correct background to be able to put something like that together? Do I need to hire a professional grant writer? Do I need to go get a PhD to help me out? I mean, or is it very intuitive based yeah. on the questions that you're asking?
2: Yeah, so we absolutely fund companies led by, by people with that profile. Um, the key is pulling, into, pulling together a fantastic team, right? So, you, your qualifications in that role are going to be excellent for running that company. But I think you know it's fair to say, you're not gonna be the one at the bench running those studies, even probably not the person designing those studies. So who are you pulling in with you? Is that a collaborator who's an academic? Um, that could be, for instance, a great STTR project, which you know, we talked briefly about the Small Business Technology Transfer Program, STTR. That is specifically meant to be a collaboration between a startup or small business with an academic university to kind of help um, bring along, the idea is to bring along an academic innovation and transfer it to a small business. But it happens, uh, we see those projects happen anytime there's a, a strong collaboration between academia and a small business. So, you know, the question I would I would post to that individual is um, what does your team look like? Because at the end of it, you're gonna have to do this study, right? You're gonna have to do it and you're gonna have to do it well and you're gonna have to show it to the FDA um, or you're gonna have to, you know, base your marketing materials on it or your reimbursement materials on this data so it better be collected well. Um, and so who are you working with that has that expertise that's going to be the person running the study and that's what we would want to see up front. Uh, it is absolutely true that these that it's a very technically focused review panel. It's a very technically focused um, due diligence process. We are used to working with companies who are very, very young. Um, we like to see that there's mentorship there. We like to see that they have a board. Um, we like to see that they have a, a slew of technical advisors and business advisors, but we, there's, there's a lot of understanding of working with small, um, young, very young companies. The technical side though has to be rock solid. Um, that, that is definitely the standard for NIH small business uh, awards is that they are technically solid, even if the company itself is, is you know, brand new and just getting its feet off the ground.
1: So I'm sure it takes all the resources to be able to review all these applications, like you mentioned, but that's six to nine months of hearing nothing but silence. I mean, if I'm like a very voracious and growing startup company that needs money yesterday to be able to hit something yeah. in two months, that's one of the things that you have to take into consideration when you're doing the absolutely.
2: Grant. It's really t- it's 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 really tough. Um and you can certainly reach out to you know your program officer, the person who is basically like me assigned to be the contact for you. Um, for your grant, you can reach out, but a lot of those, um, a lot of those um, very anxious CEOs and CSOs who reach out to me, I just have to say, I can't, can't say anything. It's all being, you know, it's all in that black box period where it's being discussed, um, and we're not going to have an answer for you till the end of this, and that can be very frustrating. That that period of unknown can be very frustrating. It's also not, again, with that twenty percent success rate, it's not uncommon that we see that applicants need to resubmit their project. Um, two times, three times, four times. I had someone who just resubmitted their sixth time on a project and they got funded on the sixth time. Um, So you know that's three to four months every round of delay. Um, So it can be a long haul. Um, If you submit the first time and you nail it, you can get that check into your bank account in as little as six months, but that's not the typical story. Say that the typical story is usually you do it once, you know, hopefully you're getting a pretty good score, you get some feedback, you get a lot of feedback actually from your reviewers, you take that review um, information into consideration, you strengthen your proposal, you address those comments or questions, you resubmit and hopefully at that point of a resubmission, um, now you've nailed it and you're at a score level that we can help to support. Um, but it, it the, the journey varies for for everybody. Um, and, and that is the hard part, that timeline, that that, that period of uncertainty, um, those are the hard parts about this path of funding.
1: Last question, we're, then we're gonna bring David in. You mentioned earlier the NIH with NSF and other areas of the government who can provide the styles of funding. For those yeah. listening out there who can do their own research after they hear this, beyond the NIH, if I'm in the medtech space looking for non-dilutive grant funding, where are my options that I can look or go to for the style of funding?
2: Absolutely. Yeah. So, so NIH is a big one. Um, we're, it's, easy to, it's typically fairly easy to figure out um, where to apply at the NIH because um, we have kind of a catch-all funding opportunity you apply to. It doesn't really matter what your exact project type is. Um, you can almost always apply to that, to that big catch-all called the Omnibus uh, funding opportunity. So it's fairly easy to find at the NIH where to go to. Uh, There are also funding opportunities at NSF. NSF is often a funder of medical uh, technologies and innovations at the very earliest stage. So often before it has a specific indication, but you're proving out the technology. So say, for instance, you're proving out a new um, near-infrared technology that might be appropriate at the NSF level. Um, when you're when you're at the point where you've proven out that that new NIR technology works, and now you want to apply it for you know say a, a neural application, um, then you might the NIH would probably be the right place. But um, NSF is is going to be a great place for technology innovation in and of itself um, before it gets applied to medical applications. Uh, DoD is really interesting because they have a lot of med tech um, interest. However the way that they do their funding is they have very specific topics that are open at a given time. And so you you really can just Google, you know, DOD SBIR and what you get is a list of specific topics, specific areas and technologies that they are interested in funding at a given time. these are coming out of places like DARPA or um, CDMRP, oh gosh, I'm gonna mess up the acronym for CDMRP, Congressionally Mandated. Yeah, you know, medical David.
3: research program.
2: Yeah, thank you. And <laughs> um, other and other, the, you know, there's army, there's there's individual military branches that have um, SBIRs, but you really have to kind of peruse through and see if there's a match for the specific technology they're funding to to your um, to your medical technology. So it can be a bit of work. Um, but but those I think are the big places where you're going to see interest in med tech and in funding med tech and, and every agency comes with its own um, its its own processes for how they solicit those applications how they award those applications you know there's there's a lot of variability between agencies but what i'm talking about today is um, is applicable across the NIH so uh you know and, and and we're a good place to start
1: so emily thank you so much this is that grandioso view of Grant funding coming from the NIH and the governmental programs that you mentioned. So thank you very much for explaining that. I'm sure the listeners learned something new. I know for a fact that I did. And we're now lucky enough to have the guest also on this one. This is a second guest. I've never done this before. (laughs) I'm glad that he's here. We just actually heard his voice a little bit ago. And actually, what he did share was the congressionally directed medical Research Program, CDMRP. So thank you for that, David. And David, now it's your turn to jump in. Uh, Let's start with an introduction. Tell us about yourself. Where are you from? How did you get to where you are today? And then what is it that you do within the NIH, specifically with a highlight on the Blueprint MedTech program?
3: Great, thank you. So I'm David McMullen. I'm a program officer at, at NIMH. So that's another one of those NIH institutes specifically it's the National Institute of Mental Health. And so we, we have a focus on a variety of mental health disorders and in there I, I lead a program focused on neuromodulation, neurostimulation devices. And that's all the way from device development all the way to running the, the relevant clinical trials. So uh, similar to, to Emily, uh, I have a background in, in neuroscience. I, I got involved in, in uh, brain machine brain machine interface research uh, while undergrad at Duke. Got really excited by that and thought, how can I really contribute to this field? And so I thought the clinical path made sense for me. So I went to medical school uh, back home at at Rutgers and then took some time off to do some of this brain machine interface research in in human participants, uh, as sort of Emily mentioned. I ended up uh, going to, uh, starting a neurosurgery residency program at, uh, at Johns Hopkins where I'd done some of that research And then my path sort of uh, intertwined with Emily uh, from there on out. So I I also went to DARPA and uh, for a shorter period of time than Emily, but we had a lot of fun fun there and then got recruited up to NIH to start up this program at NIMH. Um, Some of the work uh, that that I had done at Hopkins is is some of those collaborators that Emily had mentioned with uh, her Mindex company. So really exciting to see some of those neurotechnology and um, AI approaches, uh, make it out there to at least the startup stage. So uh, th- that's my background, but I, I really wanna talk today about the, uh, the Blueprint MedTech program, as you mentioned, and just a, a, a short blurb on, on that program and then we can get into it. But the Blueprint MedTech program is an NIH incubator, that aims to accelerate the translation of novel neurotechnologies from the bench to the bedside. And it provides both non-dilutive funding or grant funding, along with access to NIH-provided resources to individual projects. And these projects will range from early-stage seedlings and development-stage projects through to preclinical and first-in-human clinical trials. And so it's a, it's a pretty new approach uh, to, to funding than the traditional uh, NIH approach of just providing the funds. We're providing both those funds, as usual, but also access to these resources. And so we think that this is uh, going to be really helpful for for all applicants, whether they're small businesses or academics, um, groups that need help figuring out what those resources are and having access to those resources, um, so that they, the quality of their work can can uh, can go up. So
1: this, and just to make this very clear, this is within the NIH, but the uniqueness about this is it's hyper specific to neuro products or neurotechnology.
3: Correct, and so I, I would say the, the blueprint side of this is a collection of the, the various NIH institutes. As Emily mentioned, at NIH there's 27 institutes and centers and you can imagine they, they cover all of human health, You know whether it's from the brain, from the heart, from the lungs, from infectious disease. You might've heard of the NIAID, the Allergy and Infectious Disease Centers uh, Director, Tony Fauci. And so NIH covers all that span. Now, a lot of those institutes are interested in the brain aspect, the the neuroscience aspect. And so they combine their their powers basically and run a program called Blueprint. And that is sort of um, a way for people, you know, the program side who have interest for the funder side, are really interested in neuroscience to come together and run larger programs that might be too large for any one of our institutes, such as EMILY's or mine. And so this Blueprint MedTech program pulls all those resources and provides access to those resources from interested um, companies and and researchers.
1: So the Blueprint MedTech, even though there's a neuro spin to it, does each of the other 27 organizations within the NIH or programs within the NIH all have a blueprint or is this unique to neuro?
3: Yeah, so this is unique to, to neuro and the exact number of institutes may vary uh, on any one particular thing, but somewhere between nine to 11 institutes that are somewhat brain related will, will sort of team up together to try to, um, uh, you know, help run such a large uh, a large program.
1: So we talk a lot about this with venture capitalists where they're more than simply a check. They wanna be able to give capital in addition to value on top of that guidance, being able to help develop the company, etc. Are you saying that this Blueprint MedTech program, you, you mentioned incubator slash accelerator aspect to it, it also has the ability to provide these non-dilutive grant fundings, but it seems to be a lot more than just a check as well. I mean, you guys are helping out these companies develop themselves in addition to funding them along the way.
3: Yeah, and and I know this is something we we've chatted about. You know what what the the right term might be, and. I think this is sort of a a new approach to funding. Um, And so I I think incubator sort of captures the spirit of what will be happening. So it's not going to be a physical based incubator where groups come into NIH and actually receive the resources here. But it'll be more of a virtual incubator that I think the past year and a half plus now have shown is quite possible. So we'll be trying to provide those resources and we'll put together um, some links in in the show notes, but those are going to be resources along the design and prototyping bench testing for early stage uh, companies, the business development, and then really providing access to some of the biocompatibility and animal studies that are necessary for medical devices and specifically neurotechnology, and then provide um, consultants on the regulatory uh, compliance system side, all the way to some of those clinical uh, consultants and, and resources that can uh, help provide access to patients for that first in human testing. And so there's a, a wide variety of resources that we're trying to provide. And it, it's not like we're coming up with this a, a, out of nowhere. We found over the years that, as Emily mentioned, sort of that, that valley of death, uh, that, that translational uh, um, ideas often uh, need to, to bridge. And a lot of our great new research ideas that researchers and startups were coming up with were having a lot of difficulty uh, bridging that because they come into NIH, they get reviewed, and maybe they're missing a few of these aspects. And the, the reviewers say, oh, well, do they know what they're doing for their animal testing? Do they have clinical co- uh, collaborators to help with their testing? And they get picked apart because they might not have all that. So the idea of this NIH incubator is that we'll provide all those resources, we'll even give you a checklist that you can go through and say, yes, I'd like access to this, I, I need some help on the clinical, on my biocompatibility testing, check mark, check mark. And then both you'll know that you're you're ready to, to do that, but also reviewers and program will know that you've already thought about that. Like Emily said, sometimes you need to have a, a lot of the idea and the plan put in place on the front end. This is sort of to enable that. So we're really hoping that the Blueprint MedTech is a rising tide that raises all, all ships, all these new neurotechnology um, uh, ideas and, and helps all of them across.
1: How old is the program? Um,
3: yeah, so gestational age is, is uh, an interesting uh, time point. I would say it's, it's very new. We haven't funded our first round. It's something that we've been putting together the, the past uh, few years. Um, obviously, there's been some COVID-related delays, a lot of our team members were uh, very involved with some of the NIH response uh, to COVID, and so that that, was, that took priority, but we're, we're now ready to roll it out. I would say that the NIH funding of neurotechnology, though, is, is quite old, several decades old, especially at NINDS, uh, EMILY's Institute, and so there's a long track record and close um, interactions between the NIH program staff and small businesses and academic researchers in the neurotechnology space. And so we're trying to take all the lessons of the past few decades of both successes and failures of funding this new neurotechnology and develop this new type of uh, incubator of, of sorts. So it's this specific program is new, but it's built on a long history and experience of funding this type of work.
1: Well, and it sounds, built on all that history, it sounds like it's a lot more efficient too so that you could add more value to these companies. So all those entrepreneurs out there listening right now, this is an opportunity to be one of the first, if not the first, get through this program. So my my question to you, David, is if I'm an entrepreneur who's hearing this and it sounds great and I want to be a part of it, how do I get involved? How do I? Who do I reach out to? Do I just go to a website? What do I do?
3: Yeah, so I, I would say... Please reach out first and foremost, as I mentioned, there's a a number of different institutes involved and they all may have their own interests and their own way of approaching this so the Blueprint Medsex, the Umbrella uh, Program, but each of those institutes will be providing the funding itself so they're the the funders and your your listeners will know that that those are the people they want to reach out to. Um, We we have a website, again, you can try to put some of this in the show notes but Google is also your friend the NIH Blueprint MedTech program. If you Google that, we'll have all the information there. And you know, please feel free to reach out to our, uh, our global email address at blueprint-medtech at NIH.gov. Again, something we'll put in uh, the show notes if possible. And once you reach out, we'll funnel you to the right person. Uh, we're connected to all of our uh, colleagues at NIH who are, who are participating in this. So we'll put you in touch with the right person and ensure you know the right program to apply to.
1: So Blueprint MedTech, once again, you said it's very new, but also foundationally built on neuro technologies. for right now. I mean, it sounds great based on all the extra value that's coming along with the, the check. Are there even small internal discussions that may have, especially if Blueprint MedTech for the neurotech industry is successful? Are there going to be other possible Blueprint programs in the future for other disease states or applications?
3: Yeah, so I, I I don't think we can talk um, publicly about some of those internal discussions, but I would, I would say that uh, when we, if we can demonstrate clear value add of this program, I think then other, other of our colleagues at NIH would be interested in, in learning about it. And other groups have done this. So within the small business program, there are similar, uh, more regional hubs that, that fund some of these innovative projects. Uh, so, if you're following up any of Emily's links, you might hear about the NIH Reach program or some other programs that are similar. Um, and as I mentioned, NIH's COVID response that really, you know, first and foremost helped with some of the vaccine development, which is uh, of, of most importance. But it's also helped with developing a lot of the testing, some of the at-home testing that people have availability of now. Some of that was done through a a rather similar approach of having an innovation funnel, lowering the the barrier to entry for for novel ideas and startups, and then getting that pitch early and then working with those groups to develop uh, the more robust application as time went along. So I think this is a a new approach for NIH in general, but one that sort of the pandemic um, forced us into changing a little bit into evaluating new approaches. and. We're really hoping that we're gonna learn from those examples and, you know, prove it out for neurotechnology because there is such a a major emphasis for this at NIH. And then if other groups are interested in that, you know, we'll obviously be glad to work with them.
1: So I wanna say thank you both Emily Caparello for being here, David McMullen for being here, for talking today about what the NIH brings to this med tech industry that we're all a part of, and how non-dilutive funding can be incredibly beneficial, and also the journey of getting it, Um, and also the introduction for the Blueprint MedTech program. So I want to thank you again, both of you, for being here. This has been an incredible, insightful show, at least for me, this is MedTech Money, the podcast series where we demystify raising and investing capital. Thank you both very much.
2: Thank, Thank you. you. It's been a pleasure.
0: Thank you for listening to the podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. If you need anything from the podcast, you can always contact us at infoprojectmedtech.com. Thanks for listening and have a great day.